If you have your Bibles, open those up to 2 Samuel 6. We're going to start there uh, in verse 12. Um, Our time together is coming so rapidly to a close. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to take two lessons that I had planned, and I'm just going to fuse them into one, okay, because they actually tie together. Uh, There are two very famous accounts from David's life. Uh, the first one in 2 Samuel 6, I know you'll recognize, and I think you'll find the one in 2 Samuel 7 familiar, uh, but I am also very cognizant that you have business meeting tonight, so do not worry, you will be home in time to see the Walking Dead premiere at 8 o'clock on AMC. But, uh, let me begin by praying for us, and then we're just going to dive in, and we're going to read, talk, read, talk, read, talk, covering these two uh, accounts in David's life. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father God, as we come before you now, I pray that we uh, would uh, seek your word, the truth that it has, and see how we can apply it to our lives. Uh, I pray that you would speak to us uh, through David's life as we look at all that he has to teach us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, King David was told, this is verse 12 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, uh, in case you cannot tell by the words King David, we've skipped way ahead in the story for time's sake. Uh, Saul has died, David has become king of all Israel, and has recently conquered the city of Jerusalem, taking it from a people called the Jebusites. Uh, And so he is now living there in a house that he has built for himself, and here is what happens. Now, King David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. This was the Ark of the Covenant. David had had the idea of getting the Ark from uh, the tabernacle where it was uh, and bringing it to Jerusalem uh, to be in the new capital city. Uh, But along the way, there was an incident where a man named Uzzah touched the Ark uh, irreverently and God struck him dead. David, of course, says, well, if that thing's killing people, I don't want it anywhere near me. Let's give it to that guy. And so they took it to that guy's house, that guy being Obed-Edom. Uh, and sure enough, Obed-Edom's house is blessed, and everything, literally, the, the Bible says that uh, uh, the, everything that he had, all of his household had been blessed. And David goes, hmm. Now, instead of killing people, it's blessing people. You know, I think I want that ark back. So look what happens. Uh, when those that were, uh, now King David was told, the, house of the, God, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought the ark up from the city of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark stopped there. What is the first difference between this attempt to get the ark and the, the, or this attempt to get the ark and the first one? The first one, they put the ark on a new cart. And they had a couple of guys, uh, Uzzah and his brother, were, were, were helping the ark kind of move along as it was going down the trail. Is that how Israel was supposed to carry the ark? No. That was part of the reason Uzzah was struck down. They were handling the ark improperly. This time, the right people, the Levites, are carrying it the way they have been instructed. Uh, and by the way, uh, that shows us something. It shows us uh, that worship always has a prescribed order in God's word. Now, does that mean that, that God's word tells us that the choir special goes after the offering? Is that what it means? Well, some of us act like that's what it means, but that's not what it means. Uh, but God's word has always had instructions for his people's worship. What is uh, in order in terms of what's acceptable, what's allowable, and what isn't. 
And the Israelites did well this time to follow that. But look what else we learn about worship from this passage. So David went down and brought the ark up. Uh, When those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Worship is costly. Can I ask you something? What is the difference in terms of bovine between, let's say, capitalism and communism? Does anybody know? For example, well, here's the idea. I don't know if you've ever seen this meme before, but it's economic systems as explained by cows. All right? You know, uh, communism is you have two cows. The government takes your cows and may give you some of the milk. Socialism, you have two cows. The government takes the milk and gives it to your neighbor. And then capitalism, you have two cows. You sell one of the cows and you buy a bull. Think about it. Bulls have a particular value even in our world today. If you don't believe me, talk to a farmer. The things are expensive. Why? Because when you have bulls, you can do what? Make more cows. Bulls have great value. And a fattened calf was a cherished thing. It was something that that you purposefully took care of and grew up. And for the worship of God, David is willing to sacrifice these things. Worship should be costly. Now, don't get me wrong... The cost here is proportionate to the blessing that David had received. It's proportionate to his income. David is a king after all. But still, worship should be costly. And I wonder, for us, is worship costly? Is it worth a few hours of our time every week? Is it worth the money that we put into the plate? Is it worth our joy and our effort when we sing? But let's keep looking. David, wearing a linen ephod, that's kind of like Hebrew underoos, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Dancing before the Lord with all of his might. If you have a really old school Bible, I think some of the King James, this chapter is actually the heading of this chapter is David dances naked before the Lord. Does anybody have that? Anybody have an old school Bible that actually says that? Okay, all right. Oh, I said, I said naked in front of y'all, and that's what, really? Okay, well, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba next week, so y'all just get ready, okay? We're going to PG-13 next week, whether you like it or not. But David is dancing with all of his might. What kind of dancing did ancient Hebrews do? I don't know. Moonwalk, maybe? The robot, possibly? That's, that's a favorite dance of many white folk. Because it doesn't require rhythm. But David is dancing with all of his strength, with all of his vigor, with everything he has. Why? Because the people are watching? Well, partially, yes. Partially, yes. You see, because the people inevitably always watch their king, do they not? And worship depending on how much of our strength we put into it. It always shows the value we ascribe to the thing we are worshiping. Can I ask you something? If David had been there singing, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome morning, the world's end. 
Does it look from the outside like he ascribes much value to the God that made him king? No. But when he, uh, wearing little more than a loincloth, is jumping around, shouting to the Lord, singing to the Lord with all of his might, with all of his strength, with all of his vigor, making a fool of himself over God, what does that say about the value that, God, that David ascribes to God? Christian, what does your worship Oh, no. I'm not going to claim that's the Holy Spirit, but I'm just going to say you need to think about it. But, Christian, what does your worship say about the value you ascribe to God? Well, God's worth my Sunday mornings... And maybe my Sunday nights. But he's not worth worshiping with my life Monday through Saturday. Or God is worth worshiping in terms of turning up. And I'll be happy if we sing songs that I like. But he's, he's not worthy of my praise if we're not singing music. That's what I listen to Monday through Saturday. Or dare I say, since I'm leaving in a couple of weeks... Well, God is worthy of my time. Maybe he's worthy of my singing. But you know what? I work hard for my money. God's not worthy of that. Worship was costly. Worship showed the value David ascribed to God. Look what happens in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, uh, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. In her heart. Keep that in the back of your mind. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. So David wasn't even done with the bull and the fatted calf. He was putting yet more on the altar for God in his worship. And by the way, worship should encourage us to put more on the altar. We should come away from worship energized and filled with the Spirit and ready to go back into the world and put our lives on the altar for God. Let's keep going. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. Why that note, both men and women? Well, it has to do with what David gave them. Are you ready? Grab your, get your pearls ready. You're going to clutch them here. In ancient Israelite society... Date cakes, raisin cakes, were considered an aphrodisiac. That's why all the Israelites went home after they got them. Okay, And that's why they went to both men and women. And while we laugh at that, it teaches us something. Worship should make us fruitful. I wonder, do we come into this place and worship every Sunday and leave saying, you know what, we had a good crowd, but there could be more. You know what, it was so great to hear about the gospel and be in God's presence and be reminded of the great thing he has done in my life by sending his son to die for me that I should go out and tell someone. Does our worship make us fruitful? Let's look what happens. Uh, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In fact, the, the word there, vulgar, in Hebrew could also be vile. As any vile fellow would. 
You see, Michael doesn't ascribe the same value to God that David does. And she sees this worship as beneath a king. Look what happens. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house and appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. Ooh. Married people, people have been married a while. Do you remember the first fight where the in-laws got mentioned? That was not a good night in your house, was it? I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And in fact, David says, I will debase myself even more than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Why? Because I'm such a good dancer? Why? Because I look so good with nothing but a loincloth on? Although David did, again, show up next week. Trouble's coming. No. It's because they look at their king and they see that their king ascribes great value to God and is willing to put his whole heart and all of his strength into his worship. That's how David viewed the God that had made him king. And his perspective was based on what God had done for him. God had taken a poor shepherd boy and made him king. When beforehand he had no right to the throne. In my life God took a poor sinner. Who had no right to an eternity in heaven. And yet gave him one through the sacrifice of his own son. Is my worship proportionate to what God has done for me? Is it proportionate to what God has done for you? And Michael the daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. Why? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing after, yeah, well, God made me king instead of your father, I'm guessing that her and David's relationship was pretty icy after that. I would say that probably her and David's relationship was finished. She remained a wife. She lived in the palace. They, they didn't divorce or anything, but they had no physical relationship after that is the most likely reason. But also it tells us something. That when we harden our hearts to God and to the worship of God, our lives become less fruitful and less fulfilled. David got it. Michael didn't. Now let's look at chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace. So after, after the furor dies down and all the frenzy's done and the worship service is over and all the charismatics have gone home. I say that because they were dancing, they were singing, they were playing instruments, all things we would never have in a Baptist church. And by the way, you know you're a Southern Baptist if two things really cause you great theological stress. One, Jesus turned water into wine, and that bothers you a great deal. And two, David actually danced without clothing before the Lord. If those two things really bother you, congratulations, you are a Southern Baptist. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord gave him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan, the prophet, and David's very good friend. Keep that fact in mind later. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 2. David says to the Nathan, Here I am living in a palace of cedar. 
while the ark of God remains in a tent. So David and Nathan are just kind of chilling at the palace, looking out the window at where they had laid the ark to laid the ark down in this tent that David had made for it. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, two things about this, because God is about to come back and contradict what Nathan said. And that's kind of odd for us. We look at it and we say, well, wait a minute. Now, Nathan's the prophet. He's supposed to speak for God. Why does God come back in a minute and overrule Nathan? Well, there's a few things I want us to see. Number one, it's only implied that David wants to build a temple, but that's really what he wants to do. David's wanting to build a a palace equal uh, to, to what is in that tent. See, he wants something that's magnificent, something that's large, something that's big. Right? And Nathan, of course, like any good minister, when a rich congregant says, Hey, I want to fund the building program, he just says, Well, David, Jehovah Jireh, brother, it's your blessing to give, and I'm not going to stop you. That's one. But no, okay. But seriously, Nathan probably, and this is what a lot of commentators suggest, Nathan probably just looks at David's track record hitherto. Well, this guy was a shepherd. And God said he was going to be king. Then God helped him kill a giant. And then God rescued him from Saul. And then God made him king over Israel. And then God helped him defeat the Philistines. And then God helped him conquer Jerusalem. And then God let him bring the ark, symbolically bringing God's presence back to be with his people. I think it's safe to say God's okay with whatever David wants to do. Yeah, David, go ahead. It's it's fine. And so without really consulting God, Nathan just kind of looks at the track record and says, well, David, God's blessed every other thing you've done. Go for it. Why not? But look what happens in verse 4. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house uh, from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Though wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people, that means like Joshua, the judges, anybody who had been in charge of Israel as a people between Moses and then. Did I tell any of those whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, David, if I wanted a house of cedar, don't you think I would ask? If that were my will, don't you think I would tell you? And it sounds like there's a rebuke coming here. It sounds like maybe for the first time, David got it wrong. But look what happens. Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. By the way, highlight that line. If you're a highlighter in your Bible or make note of that line, that line comes up in another story. And you'll be surprised. what uh, It's almost that exact line, and you will be surprised what story that comes up in. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great. Okay, David is a king who has conquered nations, who has killed giants, who survived an attack from another homicidal king. 
How much greater can it get? Well, let's see. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may have, can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. As they did at the beginning. And have done since the time I appointed leaders. And by the way, your Bible probably has a little note there. That word leaders is the same, is the same Hebrew word for judge. He's talking about the time of the judges. Is when all the oppressing nations kept coming in and attacking Israel after they would sin. God says that's going to stop. I will also give you rest from your enemies. See, what God is telling David is, David, I don't want you to build me a house. And by the way, a lot of commentators will say, well, God didn't want David to build the house because David was going to have his incident with Bathsheba. I actually kind of disagree with those guys, although those guys have more letters after their name than I do. I kind of disagree with that because God ends up using Solomon to build the temple, and I think we all know what Solomon spends the last half or third of his life living like. You see, the reason God tells David, you're not the one to build the temple, is because that was not God's will for him. The question here is, David, even though what you want to do is a good thing, Are you willing to follow my will, even if my will says no? Because to this point, God's will for David had pretty much been yes, 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 yes. King, yes. Kill giant, yes. Escape from Saul, yes. Become king over all Israel, yes. Conquer the Philistines, yes. Conquer the Jebusites, yes. Build a temple, no. Christian, Are we okay if we pray for the desires of our heart, even when those desires are a good thing? And God says, no. Are we okay if we're the single person? I work with college students. That's why this application always comes up. Are we okay if we're the single person? Or maybe you were married once, but you're widowed now, and you're thinking about remarriage. Are we okay if we say, well, I don't want to be alone. I'd love to get married. And God says, no. I should be enough for you. Maybe uh, we've kind of felt like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I need a new place of ministry. You know, I've been here for a long time, and I, maybe I've done some good stuff. I don't know, but I feel like it's time for a change. Maybe I should, she should turn this over to somebody else and, and, and should move on to the next thing. And God says, no. Sometimes I think we forget That God is our heavenly father, not our heavenly grandfather. And that he can sometimes say, no. But in this case, he tells us why he says no. Because God's will for David is a different will than it would be for Solomon. God's will for Solomon was to build the temple. God's will for David is going to be to have rest from all of Israel's enemies. It's David who's going to deliver this peace to Israel. Why? Go back and look at the book of Judges. All the nations that come in and attack Israel, guess when they stop coming in and attacking Israel? It's David's time because David's the one who stops them. He finally subdues all those other nations. God's will for David was to deliver the peace that would allow the building of the temple. And look what happens. Let's go back to this idea of God asking David, 
Will you build me a house? The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you're not going to build me a house. David, maybe you've missed how this relationship works. You don't outgive me, I outgive you. I'll build a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rods of men and with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. David, you want to build me a house? Hey, how about this? I'm going to build you a house, one that will endure forever. Your own son will sit on your throne, and I'll never stop loving him. Something you need to know about Old Testament prophecy, and this is prophecy, by the way. This is, this is God telling David something that will happen in the future. Old Testament prophecies, almost always, there are some that God says to Israel and he says, hey, this is going to happen in a little while and you need to get ready for it. But almost all of them have an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Now, in this case, David's immediate fulfillment would be who? Solomon. It would be his son. Who, by the way, is his son with Bathsheba? Maybe there's a lesson there about God taking the bad things in our life and ultimately using them for his good. Hmm, be here next week. But, Solomon is the description. He is from David's own body. That means he'll be your, your biological son. I will establish his kingdom. Solomon did get put on the throne of Israel. He will build a house for my name. Well, that certainly happened. I'll be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and with floggings inflicted by men. Well, sure enough, when Solomon started to go astray, if you go read the, the story in 1 Kings, God does send a couple of guys who kind of rebel against Solomon and end up being a thorn in his side that actually are a direct result of punishment for what Solomon's doing wrong. It's kind of God trying to wake Solomon up. So that does happen. And my love will never be taken away from him. It's a funny thing that, that God keeps talking about how much he's going to love this son. Because you, do you know what Solomon's other name was? When Solomon is born, God sends Nathan back to David and says, Tell David that the baby's name is to be Jedidiah. Because I love him. By the way, I think, I've looked at it when I was trying to get that, when I've taught on that before. I've looked for it. I don't think you can example in the Old Testament of where God specifically says, not of a whole group of people of Israel, but as of one individual person, I love that person. It's a really weird kind of special thing that God puts on him. And God never did remove his love from Solomon. He came and told Solomon what? For the sake of your father David, I will not tear the kingdom apart from you. And your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. But wait a minute. That didn't happen. Because we know that because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom gets ripped in two. It falls apart. How then could Solomon's kingdom endure forever? Well, you see, it's only because Solomon was the immediate fulfillment. And the immediate fulfillment in Old Testament prophecy is almost always 
a partial fulfillment. You see, David was going to have another son many generations later. And that son was going to come from his own body, only it wouldn't be through the line of Solomon. Oh no, it would be through the line of his other son, also from Bathsheba, by the way, a son named Nathan, who would one day be the biological ancestor of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus would build a house for God's name. Would he build a great temple like Solomon? No, Jesus wouldn't build a temple where God's presence would dwell with his people. Jesus himself would be our temple where God's presence would dwell in his people. And by the way, Solomon's temple was only temporary. It was ultimately destroyed. But the temple of Jesus, his body, even though it was destroyed, he raised it again in three days. I will be his father, and he will be my son. What words does God say as soon as Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rods of men and the floggings inflicted by men. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. But guess what? He took Solomon's sins and David's sins and your sins and my sins and took them upon himself. And when our sins were upon him, God did scourge him with the rods of men and with floggings inflicted by men. And God's love, except for that brief moment on the cross when Jesus literally became our sin, was never taken away from Jesus. And his house, and his kingdom, and his throne will endure forever. How do I know? Because he's already there. And in 2,000 years since the ascension, he hasn't gone anywhere. And by the way, after November 4th, he'll still be there. So calm down. Keep expecting Saul. Good gosh, American Christians, stop. You see, Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. Do you realize the thing that David clinged to going forward in his walk with God? It wasn't just this promise that, hey, you're going to conquer all your enemies. It wasn't just this promise of, hey, I took you from being a shepherd to being a king. I think I got your back. No, no, no. It was the promise of the Messiah. It was the gospel that David would cling to going forward in his walk with God. And I won't go into all of it for time's sake, but I want you to look what happens Nathan goes and says all this to David. Your your house, your kingdom, they'll endure forever. You're going to have a son and he's going to sit on your throne forever. And David went and sat before the Lord. That means back before the ark. By the way, this is why these stories dovetail. The ark comes to Jerusalem. God makes this big proclamation. David goes back and sits in front of the ark again. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know that you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. And we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth? That God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders and driving out nations. Do you realize, I'm not going to read the rest for time's sake, but do you realize what happened? David worshipped God. God made David an even greater promise of even greater things. 
And that drove David right back to worshiping God. Can I tell you something? Christian, you come to this place to worship God because God has done great things for you through Christ Jesus. But when you're here, be reminded of something. What is heaven going to be like? It's going to be worship. Church, by the way, is your, is your dress rehearsal for heaven. I know what some of you are thinking. Heaven is going to be like an eternal church service? Oh my gosh, it sounds more like the other place. But I just, it'll be better, okay? The preaching will be better, I guarantee. And we'll all be able to sing, I think. Or we won't be able to care. We won't care one or the other. And so just like David, we come together and we realize God's going to do even greater things for us in the future, forever, in eternity, and that drives us right back to more worship. And so that's it, right? Roll the credits. The story ends. David has conquered the people's enemies. He's given them a capital and a home. He's brought God's presence symbolically in the ark back to his people. He's shown them how to worship, that they should worship and worship with all their might. And David has this promise from God that one of his sons will sit on his throne forever. Israel will not wander anymore. They won't be oppressed anymore. That's it, right? The promise God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis is fulfilled, right? David is God's hero, that the people have been searching for. David is God's king whose throne would, bring, would, would be established forever. David was the shepherd that was going to finally care for Israel. Right? Well, what happens when God's hero becomes the villain? What happens if God's king abuses his throne? And what happens if the shepherd turns out to be just another sinner? What then? Where is their hope? Join us next time.